Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Stuck in the Middle, and it is part of the MOVE Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can check us out at our website at bccma.org, or you can always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Um, let's, we're going to go to the book of Joshua this morning, chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're talking about moving. We're talking about moving from where we are to where we belong. God knows where you belong. Somebody said this, and I think it captures the way some of us feel, because today's message is about being stuck in the middle. I am not happy. I am not unhappy. I am frozen somewhere in the middle. That is so much worse. I am nowhere. Nothing is happening, and I'm getting more and more sad. You know, if the devil can't keep you in the land of bondage, which is a type of Egypt, we're talking about Israel. Israel had been in Egypt. They They were released from the bondage of Egypt and given permission to go to the promised land. It was supposed to take 11 days. It took 40 years. And, and the people who started the journey all died, and their children, where we're going to read in a moment, got ready to go into the promised land. But if the devil cannot keep you in the land of Egypt, he will try to keep you out of the land of promise. He will do his best to keep you stuck in the middle between Egypt and Canaan. Between his worst and God's best. Between total bondage and total freedom. That great theologian, Richard Branson, (laughs) said, if you find yourself stuck in the middle, there's only one way to go forward. Let's look at that snapshot of a time in Israel's history when they chose to neither go forward nor go backward. They accepted a condition as normal that, they, that it was never meant to be normal. I see that with a lot of people. They accept conditions in their marriage, in their friendships, in their own personality. They accept things that are normal that are never meant to be normalized. You know, your, 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 your thing is, and many of you, many of you came from situations that were abusive and difficult and dysfunctional, and you're determined you're not going back to that abuse. But are you going forward to a changed life? You're not going back to those bad people, but are you going to go forward to those good people? You're not, you've left the bar scene and the party scene, but have you joined the church of Jesus Christ? God brought you out to bring you in. Let's say it together. God brought me out to bring me in. Numbers 13.30, we're going to go, let me give you a snapshot of what happened 40 years before our text today, Numbers 13.30, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can conquer it, but the other men who had explored the land with them disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we travel through and explored will devour anyone who goes, goes there to live there, 
And all the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. So you be, when you get really negative, you become a mind reader. You know what other people are thinking, right? When you become really negative, you become a, you become a storyteller. You tell your story, self a story about the way everyone looked at you or didn't look at you, whether everybody walked by you. You tell yourself all these stories. Now let's read, let's jump ahead. Before, before that, I want to go, before I go to uh, 214, before I go to 1565 B.C., which is when what happened that I'm going to read about in a minute. Before I go there, I want to introduce you to a lady named Renee Napier who refused to stop in the middle. She had her Egypt. She had her tragedy. She had the, one of the most horrible experiences that any of us can ever experience, and some of you have, and that is the tragic sudden death of your child. She had that experience, but Renee Napier decided, I'm not going to be stuck in the middle between Egypt and the promised land. I'm going right to the promised land, and I want you to see a short video that tells her story. News 13's Mark McAfee brings us a story tonight with a warning and a lesson in forgiveness. Mark. Jerry, Renee Napier's daughter Megan died after being hit by a drunk driver in 2002. She soon started towing the car to Panhandle High School to tell her story to students. But she says she soon realized her presentation was missing something. I hit him in their back fender with the front left side of my vehicle. It's been nearly nine years since Eric Smallridge killed two 20-year-old girls while driving drunk. I felt like, you know, I had no direction in life. You could have put me in a, in a deep rainforest somewhere and I wouldn't have been more lost. Renee Napier remembers when she heard the news, her daughter was gone. The, the wailing and, you know, crying that comes from the depths of your soul, you know, that you just, you, you don't really know where it comes from, but it's just so, that the pain is so horrible. She started towing the wrecked car to Panhandle High Schools, delivering a message of self-control to students. But she says she felt something was missing. I knew from the beginning that if I could just have Eric with me, that that would be very powerful. So she lobbied the Department of Corrections, local sheriffs, and even the governor's office. And now Smallridge speaks with her while still serving time for killing her daughter. Whenever I see Renee Napier, I just, I see like an angel. I mean, I could hate Eric Smallridge forever. That's not going to bring Megan back. Napier continues to teach students about consequences, but there's now also a lesson of forgiveness. It doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. It's not, it doesn't match what you're feeling on the inside, you know, sometimes, but it is the right thing to do. And students say they're affected by both messages. And it's two different things to hear something and see something for yourself. It makes me not want to drink anything at all, much less drinking it behind a wheel. When he stepped in the room, when the mom was talking, everything just kind of shut down and everybody just got real quiet and started paying attention. We live in a world where there's a lot of pain and heartache and, you know, I, I want to promote love and, you know, forgiveness and try to help break that cycle of hatred. Now, Napier actually worked with a judge to get Smallridge's sentence cut in half. She started a nonprofit foundation and she survives on donations. So if you want to help her out, there's a link to it on our web channel at WMBB.com. Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. Here's what Renee Napier did, and here's what the people of Israel did. The people crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. 
Then they camped at Gilgal, just east of Jericho. It was there at Gilgal that Joshua piled up the 12 stones taken from the Jordan River. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future your children will ask, What do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. That is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes and kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up until we had all crossed over. He did this so all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful so that you might fear the Lord your God forever. And then we go into chapter 5, verse 1. When all the Amorites, kings of the Jordan, and all the Canaanites, kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast, heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise this second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gebath Haraloth. Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those who had been born after the exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years, and to all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle uh, when they left Egypt had died. When they had disobeyed the Lord, I know this is a lot of scripture, but I, I, I just feel like it's really important that we, that we see some things that are in the scripture and uh, it, I can get it out to you quicker this way, I think. For they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons, those who had grown up to take their father's places. For they had been, not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today, and here's what I want you to circle, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Today I have rolled away the shame of your, of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal till this day. While the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. And I just want to throw a graphic up there to show you, to put all this in place, to kind of remind you it's a real place. You see, in their DNA, in the DNA of the people of Israel was, was faith and adventure and obedience and victory and supernatural occurrences and power. Remember, their father Abraham had left a place not knowing where he was going, a place called Haran. The Bible says he went in faith. Abraham had without blinking an eye given his nephew Lot the well-watered plains of Solomon while he took the pile of rocks called Palestine. Abraham had defeated five kings to rescue his nephew Lot when he and his family were taken hostage. Abraham had such faith that he was willing to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, trusting that God would resurrect him. This was in their DNA. But they had lost it in a place called Egypt. Egypt had, had done something to their souls. The abuse, the oppression, the slavery, the, the being confined to the will of another, being confined to the will of Satan for their life, being crushed and being defeated in the land of Egypt where they were for all those many, many years had done something to their soul 
So their DNA, their DNA had been had been uh, warped until there was they were no longer men and women of faith and promise. But God moved them across the Jordan River, and that's what He's. That's what he's doing for every one of you today. And that's what every one of us in this room, some things have become normal to us and we've become defeated in areas where defeat is not God's will for our life. So how do we move from the middle and go into the land of purpose and promise and power and prosperity? How do we do it? Number one, to move from the middle, you must accept the purpose of Egypt. To move from the middle, you must accept the purchase purpose of Egypt. God's purposes, let me tell you something. This is probably one of the most important principles that we could ever know. Is that God's purposes always prevail, no matter how tragic our circumstances. No matter how bad our abuse, no matter what happened to you when you were a child, no matter what your parents were like, no matter what you went through, God's purposes always prevail no matter how tragic our circumstances. The scripture says we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We, some of you are aware of the phrase that Joseph used after his brothers sold him into slavery. That's how, they, that's how this nation got to Egypt. He was sold into slavery. There was a famine in Israel. So this Israel was a family of 12 men at that time, a father and 12 men. Minus Joseph, who had already moved to Egypt. And when his brothers, when he finally confronted his brothers for selling him into slavery, they thought he was going to kill them, but he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, this is an incredible principle that God will, God's purposes will always prevail in your life. So what was God's purpose for Egypt? Now, it doesn't, I'm not saying that God causes everything. God does not cause everything that happens to you, but God transforms everything that happens to you. Every single thing that happens to you, God will transform it to serve his purpose. God will make the devil sorry he ever messed with you. Amen? God will make the devil regret ever inflicting any oppression or punishment or abuse upon your life. Like Renee Napier. What an example of someone who makes the devil regret he ever messed with her. So what was the purpose of Egypt? You know what the purpose of Egypt was? God's purpose for Egypt was to teach his people that they were inadequate. God's purposes prevail when we are taught his adequacy and our inadequacy. See, Egypt, Egypt affirmed to the Israelis that they were not, that they were shepherds, that they were not Navy SEALs, and they were not Green Berets. They were not a mighty fighting force. They learned in Egypt that they were nothing without the power of God. They learned in Egypt, unless God delivered them, there was no deliverance. The lessons of divine adequacy and human inadequacy continued into the... And here's the reason I know it was God's purpose, because this, this lesson of inadequacy continues. You see, when they crossed the River Jordan, they crossed the River Jordan, 
in March or April of 1405 B.C. Now, that's very significant that they crossed the River Jordan in April. First of all, if you go to the River Jordan today, and I've been to the River Jordan, and you go to the River Jordan today, it's a, it's a pretty small stream, and you would think, what's the big deal? They could have all waded across, maybe. But the River Jordan was much larger because through the years it's been dammed up in various places and construction and all kinds of things. It's not the river that it was back then. Then it was a, a, it was a substantial river. And God chose the time of the month when the river was at its peak. God chose the time when it was most difficult for them to cross. Any of you ever experienced that? God doesn't make things easy. Now you think, God doesn't make things easy on me. That's what you think. But no, God refuses to make things easy for himself. Because it's not about you. God's trying to teach you that you are inadequate. Another thing that happened, and uh, you know, they celebrated Passover. That's very, very significant. They celebrated Passover. They celebrated Passover in the, in the month of March. Guess what month Jesus went to the cross? Jesus went to the cross in the month of March during Passover. He did another thing. He had all the men... He said, okay, now, now, now get this. You, you've, got the, you've got the warriors of the promised land, of Canaan land, looking down on you. And they're aware of everything that's going on. We know that because they knew that God had caused the Jordan to split up. So they're, they're being what They didn't know. They weren't aware of how afraid the enemy was of them. They weren't aware of what a powerful position they were in. They weren't aware of how the enemy really wanted to forfeit and not have the battle. And neither are most of you. Neither are most of us here this morning. We're not aware of how frightened the devil is of us. We're not aware of how he shudders to think what will happen if the church rises up and becomes what it could be. Right, man? You know, there's that story of Napoleon one time went over to a map and he pointed his finger at China and he said, there lies a sleeping giant. The devil looks at the church of Jesus Christ this morning and says, there lies a sleeping giant. If they begin to obey and pray and act in faith, I will not be able to stop them. I'm telling you, that, that's, the, that, that's what's going on in hell right now. Hell is trembling that you might wake up and realize who you are in Jesus Christ. Amen? So, but what, what, is, what does God do? God does the, another illogical thing. First, he has them cross the River Jordan at its peak. And then he says, oh, we forgot something. All your soldiers, all the fighting men have never been circumcised. This, mean, this meant that in the wilderness, they had not kept their covenant with God. You know, something happens in the middle in your life. When you get out in the middle, after you get delivered from your abuse, most of us go and we, we do some sinning on our own. We do some dysfunction on our own. We go and abuse some people. We go and, and disobey God. And so by the time we get to the place that God's ready to bless us, we have some surgery that needs to be done on our lives. So why did God... well? 
yes, we know that God wanted, the, wanted them to keep his covenant, and the circumcision was a sign of the covenant for the people of Israel. But God also wanted to qu- cause them to quit fearing their inadequacy. Because I'm telling you, and I don't want to get too delicate here today, but when you circumcise your whole army, that army's not ready to fight for a few days. <laughs> they must have been going, what is God thinking? What is God thinking? I mean, couldn't we just put this off a few months? Well, God will take care of this, we'll take care of this operation next year. God said, no. I want you to make sure and know that the battle is the Lord's. I want to make sure you know. And in fact, there's, a, there's an incredible scene. There's an incredible scene where Joshua's getting ready, and I'm sure he's got his battering rams ready and getting ready to evade, invade Jericho, and a guy shows up, and, and, and Joshua says to him, are you for us or against us? And he said, no. I am the captain of the host of the armies of the Lord. I didn't come here to take sides. I came here to take over. If you want to go into God's best, you're going to have to surrender yourself. You're going to have to surrender your inadequacy and admit your inadequacy and say, I can't do it without your help, Lord. You cannot feel loved if you must always feel adequate, you know? Illustration, if, um, if we're facing danger or a mess at my house, if, if, if some lunatic is in the front yard yelling, trying to get into my house, my wife does not want me to treat her as though she's adequate. She wants me to act like she's inadequate, and she wants me to act like I am adequate. One of the, one of the first marital fights we had is because I went to bed without locking all the doors. I was supposed to lock the doors. I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was supposed to be the man. You will, not, you will not feel that God loves you unless you're willing to face your inadequacy. And when you're willing to face your inadequacy, then you are able to interpret the care and protection and power and love of God. Amen? Let me move along quickly this morning. The second thing in moving from the middle is you realize your inadequacy is real but irrelevant. It's real. You really are inadequate. It's like the guy who went to the psychologist and he said, you know, went through all these tests because he was having all these psychological problems and he went back the next week and the psychologist said, well, I've gone over all your tests and and, and the, 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 the good news is you do not have an inferiority complex. The bad news is you are inferior. (laughs) That's me. I do not have an inferiority complex all the time. Sometimes I have both. Inferiority complex and I am inferior. But to move from the middle, you must realize your inadequacy is real, but it's irrelevant. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is all you need, for my power is greatest when you are weak. Philippians 4, 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 
Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't remove their slavery until he removed their shame. I love that. At Gilgal, he removed their shame. Joshua 5.7, today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt so that the place has been, been, Gilgal to, been called Gilgal to this day. So, so, so their slavery had been removed long ago, but the shame had not been removed. Now, did any of you relate to that? Any of you relate to that? Some of you here this morning, you're 50 years old, and you haven't rolled away, you haven't allowed God to roll away the shame of what happened to you when you were five. But that's the good news in this service today, is that you are here for God to roll your shame away. Amen? We watch as Eric Smallridge stands before these students in an orange prison uniform in cuffs without shame because Rene Napier removed his shame. Having your shame removed makes you a shame remover. She let the shame of her daughter being killed. How many of you know when your child gets killed, the devil can make you feel ashamed of that? It can become a, 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 a source of shame. The reason today's call-out culture is also called a cancel culture is because they have no place to put the shame. They're putting shame on people, but they have no cross to remove that shame. They have no place of redemption, so they just have to go around ruining people's lives. The church of Jesus Christ must be the opposite of a call-out in a cancel culture. We must become a shame-lifting culture. We must become a culture of hope that no matter what we find out about you that you did 15 years ago, no matter what horrible thing you did 20 years ago, the cross says that you are forgiven. Amen. Finally, you're no longer in the middle when you redeem your story instead of rewriting it. Stop trying to rewrite your story. Redeem it instead. Renee Napier didn't spend much time trying to rewrite her story. She immediately hooked up her daughter's car and started going to high schools to talk about the drunk, drunk driving. That's redeeming your story. That's powerful. You stop being stuck in the middle when no one needs to apologize to you to make you feel better. You stop being stuck in the middle when you no longer need offenders to pay for their sins. You stop being stuck in the middle when, when you stop saying the only difference between Christians and sinners is that we are forgiven. That is not the only difference between Christians and sinners. No, no, we are a fighting force for peace and goodness in the community of humankind. You are a force for real peace between other human beings. You are a force for human flourishing. You haven't just gotten out of Egypt. You followed the high priest across the Jordan River. You know that nagging question, what was it about me that caused this to happen? That's no longer your question. Now you're ready to go into the world with the good news that Jesus saves I'm telling you God wants the church to be a place of true I don't agree with everything that's contained in what we call the prosperity gospel but God wants the church of Jesus Christ to be a true, true place of prosperity 
Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, all the believers, I want you to hear this. This is my closing verse. All the believers were together in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. And listen to this. If you didn't hear anything else today, there were no needy persons among them. That's what God wants to do in this place. God wants it to be said of this place. There's no needy persons among us. Because you have crossed the river Jordan to the place where God is meeting all your needs. You've, you've, you've crossed the river Jordan and you've left the loneliness of the wilderness and you're part of a thriving community. And your, your emotional and social needs are being met by the community of Jesus Christ, by the body of Christ. And you are living a victorious, powerful life and you're passing the good news on to your kids. Somebody say amen today. Now, some of you need to pray about what you've heard today. And this area right here is going to become an altar right now. There's three communion sets. And some of you just want to, you want to just honor the covenant. That, that, that circumcision represented the covenant. Well, that's not necessary anymore because Jesus went to the cross he took care of all of that. So today you're going, to, you're going to receive communion and you're going to celebrate. You're going to celebrate your inadequacy and his adequacy. So I want you to come today. We also have fellowship in the back. Don't be uncomfortable. Both are, It's just as spiritual to fellowship as it is to pray. It's just as spiritual to pray as it is to fellowship. It's all spiritual. It's all godly. It's all of God. So I'm going to pray right quick and then you enter in. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'll have your way in people's lives. Somebody needs to go from that childhood abuse to that adult victory today. Somebody needs to go to that bitterness that's been in their hearts for a long time that has them stuck in the middle to the forgiveness and freedom that that represents. Help them to do that today in the name of Jesus. Let's enter in to fellowship time and response time today.